I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Bring, bring it bring it to the bank. Hello and welcome back to the EPL Roundtable. I'm your host, Kevin DeVries, and as always, if you'd like to reach us at the podcast, you can do so by either tweeting us at EPL Roundtable or emailing us at EPLRoundtable at gmail.com. Hey, Kev. Thanks for having me on again. Um, my name's Sam Karp. I'm a Crystal Palace fan. You can find me on Twitter at Sam underscore Karp and some of my work for the Eagles Beak fan site. Hi. Uh, thanks for having me, Kevin. Uh, I'm Steve McGookin. I'm a Spurs fan from Belfast. I'm currently in sunny Baltimore. Um, and uh, you can get me at Steve McGookin, all one word. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for joining me today, guys. Excited to talk about all things Premier League with you, except Arsenal. And this isn't because it's a Tottenham thing, but the last three shows we've discussed Tottenham, Arsenal, and United in order, talking about them either taking the step forward or falling off, all of that stuff. So I didn't just want to get into another, here's your weekly top four update. Arsenal, obviously two very big wins. Tottenham, a very disappointing loss. Manchester United, two disappointing losses. Uh, but we'll, we will continue that third with Manchester United because last week it was about whether or not they were going to make the top four. It seems like with one week, two losses to historic rivals, they're probably out of that hunt. But they also took a step towards their future with the hiring of Eric Ten Hag. And I was just curious your guys' thoughts on that appointment and if of the reported options you think Ten Hag was the best option for them right now. Yeah, I guess so. Although it's kind of like, I never really knew how long that shortlist was for United. It always felt like it was a choice between Ten Hag and and Pochettino. Those mm-hmm. only ever, it only ever felt like it was going to be one of those two. Um, and in many ways, I think they've actually done quite well to convince a manager as well thought of as Ten Hag to come and join a club that is as kind of, you know, in as much disarray as United are at the moment. I know that, you know, despite the current state that they're in, there is still a certain allure about managing Manchester United as, you know, Paul Scholes and Roy Keane like to remind us every week, you know, the whole this is Manchester United that we're talking about um, narrative. But I can't imagine too many managers would kind of look at that look at the way the club is structured at the moment and think it's an attractive job to walk into um especially when you hear some of the things that have come out even just in in recent days obviously about a disjointed dressing room which um Skulls let slip that well yesterday I think it was on DAZN he was talking about it he said he'd had a conversation with Jesse Lingard and he said I'm sure he wouldn't mind me saying that the dressing room's a mess at the moment and I was kind of listening thinking I'm I think he definitely would mind you giving up giving away what he said in a private conversation <laughs> but um but yeah there was that and then you have Rag- Rangnick as well the current man in charge basically saying that the club needs to be gutted all the way through you know I think he he likened it to a to open heart surgery the other day in terms of the rebuild that needs to happen and you know I think that's kind of that's the problem really you can you can talk about whether Ten Hag is, you know, the right manager or not, if he's the best, sort of the best candidate they could have got. But you have to ask whether 
the club really is structured in a way at the moment for any manager to go there and be successful. Um, you know, you just look at what's happened since Sir Alex Ferguson left. You know, David Moyes couldn't do it. Louis van Gaal couldn't do it. Jose Mourinho couldn't do it. Ole Gunnar Solskjaer couldn't do it. And there are plenty of people more qualified to talk about Manchester United than me um, who watch them probably on a weekly basis who have, have noted that really things aren't necessarily going to change on the pitch until they change off it. Um, so that's kind of, I think that's going to be the big challenge for Ten Hag really, you know, to try and reverse this downward spiral that United seems to be on at the moment um, to try and kind of, you know, flush out that toxicity that just seems to exist around the place. Um, and also I think he's still, he is still a little bit of an unknown coming into this environment. Um, we know how well he has done at Ajax, their exploits in the Champions League, um, and he is kind of a sort of, you know, I guess he's kind of what you'd describe as like a philosophy manager in a way as well. Um, but United just, United's an entirely different institution to Ajax, you know, with different politics, lots of outside noise, lots of, as I've mentioned already, you know, Keane's goals, lots of old figureheads kind of having their say on the situation. So he's going to kind of have to manage that coming from a club in Ajax where there is a really good system in place to ensure consistent success. He's stepping out of that to a club where, you know, which seems to have kind of no direction whatsoever at the moment, not just kind of on the pitch, but also off it. You know, the ownership seems really detached um, and that just seems to be a massive, massive issue. So, I don't know, to me, they kind of, it feels like with United, they're at a similar juncture to where Liverpool were at in, I want to say kind of like the late, the late noughties, sort of early 2010s, possibly when they had, who were the owners before uh, FSG, um, I forget the names, but you know there was there was a really toxic atmosphere around the place, and then that kind of changed, and they brought in Klopp, and everything was kind of structured for him to succeed. So I think you know I are kind of probably hoping that Ten Hag can be their Klopp-style appointment, but again, Klopp coming into Liverpool, you even think about Guardiola going into City, you knew that everything was kind of set up at those clubs for those managers to succeed, um, and you sort of still see that today. Um, so the question really, you know, is is that the same for Ten Hag and United? Um, I'm really not sure, but I guess that's probably what we're going to find out. Yeah, I, I totally agree with all of that. And that's a, actually a really good point about the same stage of development that Liverpool were before Klopp arrived. I think that's that's the challenge, I think, for Ten Hag is to, that's the bar that has been set. Uh, like, you know, like a lot of people from Belfast, my dad is a Manchester United fan. Uh, which makes when we uh, watch the games between our two teams uh, very interesting. But he is, um, in, on the one hand, he's sort of he's he's been a you know United fan for forty years, and he's basically Ferguson can do no wrong as far as my dad is concerned. Uh, but he also realizes that maybe it's time to move on from the expectations that went along with Fergie's uh, Fergie's reign. Um, so yeah, it it's interesting that the 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 obvious expectations now for United fans of a of a quick turnaround, I think, are going to just play into the additional pressure that Ten Hag's going to be under, and and changing that mood um, that Sam spoke about in the club, that would be a huge ask, you know, for any incoming manager, uh, as I say, especially with the the pressure that the fans put on. Um, and, and you know there there are always plenty of what ifs uh, when it comes to the, being the boss of a team that, that that are still one of the biggest names in football. 
um, even if they are, you know, as you said, more of a project now than they have been for a few seasons. But but even in that context, it's it's hard to believe, isn't it, that Brendan Rodgers was was actually the front runner at one stage, but then, you know, stranger things have happened. I mean, obviously, Potch was in the frame, um, and it was really interesting, I think, to see the reaction of the PSG fans to to their title victory yesterday. Uh, and I do I do think that Potch would have been a good choice to oversee the kind of rebuild that they're going to need. Um, I'm not sure that. A, a partnership with Rangnick as editor, as editorial director as director of football would have been um, would have been what Potch would have wanted, but I think certainly in terms of the way he nurtures young players and that sort of thing, he, he would have done a good job. Um, Zidane, Diego, Diego Simeone, I guess they were also spoken about at various points, but I can't help but think back. And Kevin, you and I have talked about this before. To when United beat us three to nil at the lane yeah. just uh, before Christmas, in what turned out to be Nuno's um, uh, last game in charge, and and what effectively then became loser gets Conte game, um, and how things might have might have been different for both teams if that result had had gone differently. So uh, yeah, I, I, obviously a big challenge for Ten Hag coming in, and and, and interestingly, I thought. It seems similar to the immediate challenge that Tuchel had when he arrived at Chelsea. You know, sort out the defence first before you do anything else. But realistically, it's hard to imagine United being turned around as quickly as Tuchel was able to do at Stamford Bridge because, you know, the quality of the, of the players were, were, were there. It was just a matter of organising them differently. And, and I think there's, there's certainly more structural work to be done at United. Um, but the upside for them, I think what, what they have going for them next next year is even if they're not going to be able to offer Champions League football, they're still one of the, that, that, that very small universe of European clubs that are that are that are wealthy enough to, if not get their top targets, then at least affect the market for the leading players. So I think Ten Hag's prospects for the sort of squad overhaul that, that Rangnick has talked about and that the fans are expecting um, I, I think it's not as gloomy as uh, as a lot of United fans might fear. So uh, I think we'll just have to wait and see. And I, obviously, as I say, the, the defence is his immediate priority uh, on the pitch because I saw a stat the other day that just said this is this is only only the second time since 1979 that they've conceded 50 goals in a league season, and that's despite having De Gea, who's you know, still one of the best keepers in the Premiership. So obviously, we know where the where the structural problems are, but I think beyond that, uh, and Sam hinted at it, there, there, there's a there's a general lack of confidence and and a sense of collective responsibility. I think um, that you don't normally associate with Man United teams. So I think alongside any any positional changes, Ten Hag's going to have to get to grips with uh, with that mindset first and foremost. And, and as you say, you know, he's certainly worked, um, worked wonders at Ajax, but, you know, the jury's, the jury's going to be out for a while at, at Man U, as, as it would have been for any coach, I think. Yeah, I think those are all some really good points. And both of you kind of speaking of the, the kind of hierarchy of, of Manchester United within the Premier League and its history uh, is why you get the crazy thing of uh, Ten Hag's assistant at Ajax being offered the Ajax job and the assistantship under... Ten Hag at United and it's a choice he's trying to make like mm. you'd think you would take want to take that step to be the manager of a, of a place you're already familiar with and we all know like there is a little bit of a question mark surrounding IX managers just because it is such a strong 
culture and system at the club from scouting to ownership to management. Everything's just so cohesive that it's very easy to operate in that system. And he could have been Ten Hag in two to three years, uh, as we've seen a lot of IX managers kind of come in, get that clout, and then kind of move on. Um, but yeah, that there is still that pull. That's that's certainly true. Steve kind of just talked uh, about what might happen in the summer and, and the Ragnick quotes, which was there could be like 10 incomings, which would be obviously insane. Of the regularly starting 11, Sam, how many do you think are still going to have a place next year? Or do you think they really are just going to have this like massive philosophical overhaul of the squad? Yeah, it's quite hard to say, really. Um, I mean, when you look at, when you think about this season, you'd say the only players that really come out of it with too much credibility are probably, and even when Steve mentioned there, I didn't actually realise that 50 goals stat. But, you know, you'd say De Gea has probably still been their player, maybe their player of the season, possibly up there with, I guess you'd say Ronaldo. Um, and even Fred, I think Fred at times has been pretty good. Obviously, Fred has, Fred's usually been a bit of a scapegoat. Um, if you know, but I think he's kind of stepped up this season um, a little bit more. But I think it's sort of, I think it's pretty unrealistic to expect there to be a huge overhaul in personnel in just one summer. Um, obviously, we know that some high-profile players such as Pogba will be leaving. Um, and as, as Steve alluded to already, it's obviously the defence that needs um, the biggest overhaul, I think. especially I think they've, they've got some good centre-backs, but I think in the full-back areas is where they really need to kind of upgrade. Um, and I say that as a Crystal Palace fan who is has been watching, you know, through watching through the gaps in his fingertips at Aaron Wambasaka this season, he just appears to have kind of, you know, lost all, all confidence and just looks a little bit out of his depth now, um, unfortunately, and kind of his development has really, really stifled at United. I don't know whether that's to do with sort of the environment around him or just something going on with him. But yeah, that's been quite sad to see. Um, but I think it's also important to remember that there are still some really promising young players at the club um, in Ten Hag coming from Ajax will be used to developing those sorts of talents and you have to imagine that that's something that that will have appealed to United in appointing him um so yeah I, I wouldn't expect a huge overhaul in personnel in just one summer but I imagine we will see hints in the coming months at the direction they're going to go with the recruitment strategy um I'm not sure what capacity Rangnick is going to end up staying on in if at all but you imagine if he is working with Ten Hag on on who United do bring in then the kind of profile of, of signing is going to be a lot different to what we've what we've seen in recent years where it has just been a case of you know sign the most the biggest names the most talented individuals throw them all on the pitch and just hope that it works you know kind of the if you throw a load of shit at the wall eventually some of it will stick apology for my language but you know that's kind of what it's felt like um whereas i think there'll be a little bit more strategic thinking behind who they get in this summer with a kind of you know thinking about maybe this player isn't necessarily going to be transformational in in the 2022-23 season but further down the line they're going to be someone who really contributes um and that just goes that's another thing which kind of it's, it speaks a little bit to what steve was saying before about you know the level of expectation that's going to be on ten hog is you know is the United fan base one that's going to be prepared to be patient? Because I think that with a manager like him coming in, there is going to have to be that patience for, because even going back to the sort of clock comparison I made at the start, you know, he didn't exactly, um, he didn't exactly hit the ground running straight away. Um, 
it took time for for Liverpool to, be, Liverpool to become what they what they are today. I mean, people always mock um, what is it the uh, when Liverpool drew famously drew two two at home to West Brom, wasn't it? And Klopp leading his players over to the cop. Um, that got mocked at the time, but you know Klopp always sort of alludes back to it and says, you know, that was still kind of a moment, that was something. And you know, I, I don't know whether United fans will have that same level of patience because I think if they do, then then it is something that can turn into something great and it is something that can succeed. But they are just going to kind of have to ride it for a little bit and kind of, <laughs> if they are not necessarily making the signings that they have been in recent seasons, they're going to kind of have to have patience with players that they maybe haven't ha- haven't had in the past. Mm. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely right. And uh, and Kevin, I think that that Ajax assistant coach that you were you were mentioning, he's probably uh, weighing up exactly how much he wants to work with Steve McLaren. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, could be. And also looking at the size of the uh, checks and the difference between right. them, uh, <laughs> which is obviously absolutely fair. Um, Sam made a really important point there, I think, about the defence and the confidence. And I think confidence is the key thing. And clearly, when you're club captain and your your main uh, centre-back doesn't seem to be playing with a great deal of confidence at the moment, then that that just radiates out to, to every other player. Uh, and so, I mean, I'm not suggesting that they're going to they're gonna get rid of Maguire, but I, I just think that that is the mindset that he's going to have to address. Yeah, definitely a rough week for him, and we won't get into the you know threats yeah. and all that stuff. But hey, if you're listening, you, you know, don't. <laughs> we assume that if you're listening to the show, you probably aren't the kind of person that's emailing bomb threats to players. But if you're even thinking about it, maybe just don't. Um, we'll move next to Newcastle. Also, we're in the news this week with uh, more reports of sports washing, which I, I don't really know why there are reports. It, it just is what's happening at the club. But we'll we'll stick to the football side here and and leave that that to more educated people than ourselves on that particular issue. But I wanted to talk about their performances on the pitch because they've now jumped up to 10th. They've won four of their last four, uh, which is obviously impressive, all but ensuring that they're going to be in the Premier League next season. I, I don't think you're going to need 40 points this year. You're definitely not going to need the 43 where they currently sit. And I was just thinking about the differences between what happened in like the month or so after Eddie Howe came in to then obviously bringing in a lot of players in January, some of whom got hurt, like Kieran Trippier. Chris Wood hasn't exactly been scoring goals, but he's given kind of a focal point to the team. Bruno Gamayrish finally stepping up and looking like the absolute you know bargain purchase that he was uh, yeah. in January. I'm aware that it was $40 million, but for the player that he currently is and could be, still think that was an excellent deal. But I was curious what you made of, of Eddie Howe's performance as manager thus far, and, and what percentage of that success do you think is just the fact that they spent a crap ton in January and likely will again in the summer? Yeah, this is like a, this is another one of those conversations which seems to dominate Twitter a lot. So if you every time you kind of if you, when Newcastle tweet about another win at the end of a game, all the comments are kind of just filled with, you know, uh, blood money. Oh, you spent a hundred million, hundred million pounds. That's the only reason that you're good. And I think it's kind of it's doing how a bit of a disservice to say that Newcastle's progress has solely been down to the money that they spent um, in that transfer window. And I kind of I say that as someone who has never really taken to how um i wasn't a massive fan of him when he was at bournemouth there was chat of he was obviously kind of in the frame to take over from hodgson when palace were looking for a new manager and i kind of always used, used to buy into that sort of pe teacher vibe that people used to throw at him um but i think he's kind of i think he's probably proved quite a few people wrong um especially that especially because they had quite a rocky start under him as well um you know it wasn't 
they didn't sort of hit the ground running straight away. Um, and as you kind of say, Kev, you look at the signings that they made, while they were certainly players that you would sort of expect to improve a team in the position Newcastle found themselves in, um, you know, Chris Wood, for example, uh, Matt Target at fullback, um, and then obviously Trippier, who, as you say, has been injured quite a lot. And I guess Guarez was the kind of only sort of proper marquee sort of signing, I guess you could say. But I don't think too many of them were the sort of transformational signings that would take the club from being, you know, I guess a, a lower mid-table side to where they are now. Um, I think, yeah, they've they've obviously helped. The squad's a lot stronger. But I think you have to look at the improvements in players that were already there as a kind of as a, as a measure of the impact that, that Howe has had on the team. So you look at Joe Linton as an obvious, obvious candidate, uh, just couldn't buy a goal when Bruce was there, just couldn't, just seemed like a really ineffective player. It just didn't look like he was cut out for the Premier League when Steve Bruce was the manager. And all of a sudden he's transformed him into this guy who can play across the midfield, can play up front, scored two good goals yesterday again. Um, Almiron, who got his annual goal against Palace the other night, uh, even guys like Emil Kraft in the defence. You know, these are players who weren't really doing much under Bruce, um, but have really raised their game under Howe. And I think that's quite a good measure of of the impact that a manager has. Um, and yeah, I guess you, you could you could obviously make the argument that the conditions under which Howe is managing Newcastle are much more favourable than the ones that than the, than the cards that were dealt to Bruce. Um, but this version of Newcastle is kind of, you know, almost unrecognisable to the one we saw at the start of the season. They they play on the front foot. They go out to breathe life into games rather than suck it out of them. And, you know, the players look like they enjoy it. So, um, so yeah, I think I think you have to attribute a lot of it to, to house management, to be honest. Um, and, yeah, it'll just be interesting to see if they can kind of carry the momentum that they've got at the moment into next season. Yeah, no, absolutely, and I agree with that. Uh, a, a couple more stats. Um, only Liverpool have picked up more points in 2022 than Newcastle. Um, and this is the first time since May 2014 that Newcastle have been as high as ninth this far into the season, uh, despite spending 150 days in the relegation zone. And... Um, uh, you, you know, it, it's um, you have to say Howe has done a, a, an excellent job, really. Um, uh, but in a way, maybe he's been helped a bit by the fact that some of the other teams around him have been uh, consistently inconsistent. You know, if you look at the likes of um, uh, Brighton, Southampton, Leicester, even Villa, Wolves, uh, they just haven't been able to put together good enough runs to consolidate their their place. And, and as Kevin sort of pointed to with the end result, if you if you look at the table uh, with the various games in hand, you know, everyone from Wolves in eights down to Villa in 15th, you, you, you'd be hard-pressed to actually predict the final order in that group. So I think for, for Newcastle, it would be a huge achievement if they were to, to overtake Wolves and finish in eights. But I, I think ninth, 10th or 11th is probably a more risk, realistic um, viewpoint, especially... Uh, especially given Leicester's games in hand. But um, I, I think either way, I think we're agreed that, that the Toon fans will probably see that as a, as a satisfactory half-season's work and the expectation, again, that sets them up in a, in a decent position for next year. And again, it'll be, it'll be interesting to see what, what Eddie Howe can do with a, with a budget and in a situation where uh, you know, finishing mid-table is seen as a triumph, as he, as he was at, at Bournemouth, obviously. And, and you, know, you mentioned the, uh, 
the signings. Uh, Trippier, obviously, with all the you know the, the lingering Tottenham regret that goes along with that, and and obviously Gumarish is a terrific player. It seems the Chris Wood signing I thought was very interesting in the in the uh, you know um, it, it not only the competition for places helped get the best out of Joe Linton and Alan St Maximin I think as well, but but it also of course removed whatever goal scoring contribution. Um, Wood might have made to a potential relegation rival at the same time in, in Burnley. So, uh, oh, and I guess you know Burnley are the other big story today after the uh, after the results uh, today and the intensifying pressure that's on on Lampard and Everton and also I think Jesse Marsh uh, at Leeds and that that final relegation place. Um, now that you know Newcastle are no longer in it, but. Uh, that final relegation place is, is turning out to be, you know, just as competitive as the, as the, the, the race for fourth place. And, and it, it's strange how the, the sort of run-ins are intertwined because I noticed the Leeds have to play uh, Arsenal, Chelsea and Man City. Everton have Chelsea and Arsenal. Burnley have to come to us. And I suppose of those three, you'd probably say Burnley maybe have the easier of the, of the run-ins, but it's... Uh, it's never easy to, to play against a team that's desperate for points, uh, even at uh, even if you think you're safe yourself. Um, so yeah, but certainly in terms of in terms of what Howe has accomplished, um, I wonder. I would really like to know what his relationship with John Joe Shelby is, because I mean, from a playing perspective, obviously, because it seems like whoever comes into uh, a, a team like that where there's a dominant player on the park. And I think the closest man you have to that is probably McTominay. Uh, and so the relationship that, that you know, Howe has with, with uh, Shelby uh, to execute his plan on the, on the field, uh, Ten Hag's going to have to develop that similar kind of relationship with, with McTominay as well as Maguire as well. So, uh, yeah, no, I think that the, the individual dynamics of the players who are there are actually probably more important than the relationships of uh, with the manager and players that might come in. Yeah, I think those are all really good points. And uh, I just did some quick math. And uh, in the one month that Hal was manager uh, before that January window, 0.29 points per game since January, 0.64. But Steve, you basically yeah. already said that, that nobody uh, outside of Liverpool have picked up more points since January. So yeah, I, I think it's probably too small of a sample size, probably both sides, to be honest, to draw mm. much from. But did find it interesting that it leapt that high after that window. Um, and you guys obviously talked about a lot of the players that they've already brought in and the fact that they'll probably buy more in the summer. Uh, what are the expectations from us, which is obviously just a big group of neutrals, about where we think Newcastle will finish next year with a full uh, offseason, with a full summer of buying players? Hopefully Eddie Howe doesn't just try to get more Liverpool players uh, like he did when he was at Bournemouth. I'm not sure Divock Origi is going to be your guy. Um, <laughs> although he did score again today, as per, uh, in, a, in a big match in the final minutes. Uh, but yeah, I was just curious. Are, are we thinking like Europa League? Are we thinking they're going to jump all the way into the top four discussion? Or do we think they're kind of going to stay in this like 8 to 12 space for another year or two? Yeah, that's um that yeah that stat that Steve brought up is crazy. Actually, my dad mentioned that to me yesterday about the um them picking up uh second most points in 2022 and the kind of thing that do you remember the last team that probably did something like that from a 
I guess from being relegation threatened to kind of just surging up the league, that's probably Leicester. And then they won the league the, the season mm. after, didn't they? So I hope that doesn't happen because as much as I am kind of crediting the job that Howe's done, I still there is still there is always part of me watching Newcastle yeah. that sort of thinks, you know, this is there's something I don't I don't like this. There's something I don't like about it. Um, but yeah, uh, I I think in terms of next season, to be honest. The, that's all going to depend on what they do this summer, really. Um, you know, for all I, for everything I just said, I think the squad is probably still a a mid-table squad. The kind of the, basically what Steve was saying in terms of eighth to eighth to fourteenth, that kind of area. And I don't think this this wave that they're currently riding is is going to last all the way through next season. You know, they will kind of hit some bumps in the road under how. Um, so I suppose the way the way I'd kind of look at it is that after after making those signings in January that were, you know, really did strengthen the squads, um, were pretty much designed to solidify their place in the Premier League and just ensure that relegation wasn't going to be a thing. Um, I guess the question is, can they make more of those signings like Guimaraes, like Trippier, who, who, you know, who are used to competing at the top end of the table, who are used to success, who are used to winning games, more often than not and that's probably what's gonna that's the top those are the sort of caliber of players who are going to push them on um so i think obviously it sort of goes without saying that the days of newcastle being a perennial relegation struggler are behind us which is probably something that would, would alarm some of those teams that typically finish outside that sort of top eight top nine because you could always kind of count on newcastle being one of those sides that you could drag into it and just you know, when when one of those teams kind of leaves that group, it does kind of it does look an awful lot smaller. So um, the sort of pool of teams that can go down now uh, feels like it's shrunk quite a bit with this investment that's gone into Newcastle. Um, but yeah, I think I'm, I'd be surprised if we see them if we do see them kind of pushing into that sort of top six or seven conversation. I think I I think there's still I think there's still a way for them to catch up with teams even like sort of you know your Leicesters and, and your West Ham's who have who have really developed in recent years so I'd, I'd say yeah I I'd, I'd, I think probably mid-table again is kind of where I'd place them next season. Yeah I think that's right I think that's a probably as you say they're probably a pretty solid sort of top top half um, team now and I think that there is going to be pressure from the fans to Use the resources to spend the money on a on a on a flash signing, a big name signing, just to just to prove they can. But I, I I can't see from an agent perspective, I can't see anybody taking a punt with a player, especially a younger player, um, until they've established themselves as a perennial Champions League challenger. Um, so I think I think it's going to be a couple of seasons before you see. I think next season will be the. Um, the consolidation phase where they'll they'll bring in a couple of veterans, a couple of people who know how to how to run a game properly. Uh, and then the following season, you might see them splash the cash a little bit more uh, in terms of trying to, because some of the things that, that the Newcastle fans have been saying, you know, the expectation that we're now in PSG's league, we're now in Man City's league. I think that's just nonsensical. And I think if the club is being run uh, responsibly and with an eye on building the, the the platform on which they're going to move into a top four conversation, uh, then that won't happen overnight. So yeah, I, I think much as I hate to disappoint the Newcastle fans, um, I, I can't see them really, you know, splashing out on a on a big name signing next season. Um, but what do I know? <laughs> 
a lot, uh, but <laughs> thanks for asking. Um, yeah, no, I, I agree with all of that. All right, we'll wrap up this first section talking about crossing. So both your clubs, Palace and Tottenham, rank in the bottom 10 in both total and accurate crosses. And I was wondering if you thought at your club, if that's more of a tactical or formational choice by the manager or just a lack of quality crossers in the squad. Yeah, on paper, it's maybe a little bit surprising uh, when I saw this stat because, uh, you know, Palace do play with a front three. They have a big man going through the middle in, in Mateta and then you usually have two of two of Elise, Zaha, Ayu and Edouard either side. Um, but then think about it a little bit more. Um, Palace really aren't a very big team ourselves. Um, you know, you think back to the start of the season when we really struggled with set pieces. I, I generally think a big part of that was just down to the fact that our players aren't very tall, uh, which sounds a very simplistic way of looking at it, but it was quite noticeable that the other players were just bigger and it just kind of, it, it did make a difference and we kind of had to think about a different way of defending set pieces. Um, but so like kind of thinking in those terms, it probably wouldn't be a very good tactic for us to be putting in a lot of crosses. Um, and, you know, maybe with the exception of Elise, uh, crossing probably isn't really what you'd associate with those other sort of wide players that I mentioned, you know, Zaha's, Zaha kind of likes to cut in a little bit more. Um, are you the same? And then Edward is sort of, he, he's played out wide, but he's not necessarily a winger. Um, so, so yeah, and it's not really something you'd associate massively with our fullbacks either. You know, they're a little bit more defensive minded naturally, I think. Um, so, so yeah, I wasn't, it's, it's not too surprising to see that stat, to be honest. And I think it also speaks a little bit to the change in style that, Vieira has implemented um you know I think back to last season uh even the last few seasons really under Hodgson and the plan was always to get the ball wide to Andros Townsend or Wilfred Zaha in fact they even did a montage when Townsend left of all of the crosses that he'd put into Benteke for goals which kind of speaks it's kind of they weren't really trying to hide the fact that that was the tactic um so so yeah I think historically that's kind of been more of a focus for us but this season it's been a case of you know the front three interchanges a lot more um while Mateta obviously is a is a big guy and is decent in the air he's actually really really good with his feet as well and he a lot of his goals have actually come from him sort of coming onto full uh, coming onto pullbacks and that kind of thing and arriving late in the box so rather than kind of attacking aerial crosses it's been more of sort of doing stuff with his feet really and you know generally throughout the team there's a greater focus on possession too we try to pass the ball through the lines play balls in behind so I think yeah it speaks a little bit more to the way that Vieira wants to play and it yeah kind of points to the to the changes that we've made this season so so yeah um an interesting stat definitely but kind of when I started to pick through it I think I can kind of see the reason that we are kind of down there in in that area yeah, well, uh, unlike Sam, uh, that stat didn't surprise me at all when it comes to Tottenham, um, and and you know why, uh, Kel, as well. I think I think whatever happens, we're we're going to be looking at both sides of the pitch in terms of uh, effective wing backs, since we, we just haven't had any consistency of service from from those uh, from those positions. I mean, the situation we have right now with with Doherty's enforced absence, um, just at a point when he was starting to, you know, make a real contribution, I think, and started to integrate into that system a lot better, um, means that, you know, Emerson Royal's back in the lineup, like it or not, and because uh, we have no other options. And then... Uh, I that... do not, for the record. <laughs> okay, fair enough. 
his distribution is just shocking. I mean, it, 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 we can't uh, can't continue without addressing that. Um, and then, you know, that in, a, in turn has had a knock-on effect, I think, on Kulishevsky because he's having to drop deeper with, with, with Royal plays behind him. And, and obviously, thankfully, the upside with Kulishevsky is he covers a lot of ground anyway, but I think it, it constrains him uh, when he has to when he has to sort of play that deep, um, but I, I I do think Doherty is the, obviously the preferred option there of what we have available, um, and and on the left hand side, you know, Regulon, much as I love him, his end result has pretty much always been disappointing. I mean, I, I, I you know, um, and and I would have to say that you know, time time's probably running out for for Ryan Sessegnon to to impress Conte sufficiently to. To be in the mix for a for a starting position next season. So, you know, again, it's like um, I just mentioned Kieran Trippier when we were talking about Newcastle signings, and it it is hard to imagine really that that he wasn't at least on our radar at that time. You know, he would have been a, a known quantity for us for sure, and it would have gone, I think, some way at least to to plugging that gap and addressing the fact that we have gone down in quality since Kyle Walker left. And I understand why we sold Walker. The, the, the price was, you know, it was an overinflated price, I think, for for uh, for that moment. But, and, and, you know, there's an argument about selling selling to one of your top four rivals at the time, which, uh, you know, we, we can argue about. But we, we thought at that point that Trippier was going to, uh, was going to turn out to be better consistently than he turned out to be, which is why he ended up, he ended up leaving. But, I do think that would have that would have plugged a gap for us if we'd known he he would have been uh, available to come back. I mean, obviously, that you know there are other issues around how we create chances and how much we rely on on Kane, for example. Uh, you know, the idea of Kane dropping deep and not being not being able to feed himself is uh, is a huge is a huge issue for us. Um, but but the the wing back situation is definitely I think a more obvious one that that is going to need um, addressing given given the way Conte is committed to playing. Yeah, that all obviously depends on Conte being there next year. But we'll get to that well, in a second. <laughs> we'll leave that there for now, and then we'll be back with club specific questions for each of our guests. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. All right, and we are back. Sam, we'll start off with you. Um, I figure we need to touch on the uh, cup match. Obviously, you actually got to go. Your first one in a while, you were telling us right before we hit record. And I was just curious if you're more pleased that you've made a deep cup run, more disappointed with the result, and what the atmosphere was like on the day. Yeah, uh, it was a 
it's very rare that Crystal Palace kind of get to get to feature in an occasion like that. So it's always a really, really good day, irrespective of the football. And um, I'm sure a lot of Palace fans had a similar experience to me. You kind of, you know, get up to London fairly early, go out, have a few drinks. Um, by the time the game kicks off, you're kind of seeing a couple of footballs rather than one. But um, but yeah, it was a it was a, it was a really fun day, and you know, Palace fans always bring a lot of colour to Wembley, uh, as we did in 2016, I think the last time was when we got even closer than than this season to winning. Uh, obviously, that extra time goal from Jesse Lingard for United at that point. But um, yeah, it was to be honest, the foot the football on the footballing side of it felt like a little bit of an anticlimax, to be honest, and it felt like a little bit of a missed opportunity um, because. It did feel a little bit like Chelsea were there for the taking. There was a, you, you know, you never kind of go into these games as a Palace fan expecting to win. Um, but kind of given given the run that we'd been on in the build-up to that, obviously had, had held City to a nil-nil draw, had kind of, you know, made a win against Arsenal look fairly routine, and that was an inform Arsenal that we that we beat at Selhurst Park just a couple of weeks before the semi-final. Um, there was a really good really good feeling going into it whereas you kind of felt with Chelsea it was sort of the opposite you know they'd been pummeled by Brentford at Stamford Bridge um they'd just gone out of the chat they'd obviously played extremely well in Madrid but just been knocked out of the Champions League um so you felt like they, you, you felt like they were a little bit more vulnerable than than a Chelsea side you would usually come up against and it just didn't really feel like we laid too much of a glove on them to be honest um we set up completely differently to how we have all season as well we played we played a three five two, uh, three five two um which we kind of it, it was it, it impressed me in the way that we sort of moved to that you know the first half we contained Chelsea pretty well without really threatening them too much ourselves and then kind of the second half we just sort of Vieira made a fairly strange substitution early on where he took off Mateta for Ayu and kind of everything just kind of from that stage on the ball just kept kept coming back and it was we didn't really have a focal point anymore um and there was just became a little bit of an air, air of inevitability about it and um yeah so it was it was very disappointing both goals as well we kind of shot ourselves in the foot a little bit Mitchell lost the ball in a pretty dangerous area for the first one uh Loftus cheap shot got a bit of a deflection and, and flies in and from that point on it all felt fairly routine for Chelsea to be honest so um so yeah obviously Really good to have got that far, especially in Vieira's first season. I'm not sure many Palace fans would have expected us to reach a semi-final of a, of a cup competition in 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 his debut season. Uh, so it was kind of a bonus in that sense. So it's hard to be disappointed, but at the same time, there is kind of this lingering feeling of you know, what if? What if we did have a little bit more of a go and kind of play with that sort of high intensity press that has kind of caused some of those top teams a problem so far this season. Gotcha. And then Steve will come to you to talk a little bit about Tottenham. Things looked really good two weeks ago, really bad four weeks ago, really good six weeks ago. This has kind of been the pattern of the uh, race for the top four with Tottenham and Arsenal and United. It seems the latter is now probably out of that conversation. But why do you think Tottenham have suddenly started to struggle after being the highest scoring team in 2022 to suddenly not having a shot on target for two consecutive matches? I don't know, Kevin. Honestly, to use the word why, I mean, there it's inexplicable. Well, it's not inexplicable. I got to tell you, I was dreading going on Spurs Twitter after yesterday's game, you know, so much that I went to the garden center 
And uh, and sure enough, when I when I came back on later, it was exactly exactly what I was expecting. The sense of uncertainty and fragility in this team at the moment is being is being mirrored uh, as it always does by the fans. We're we're a pretty fickle bunch to start with, I think, and this roller coaster of inconsistency that has basically summed up Spurs' performances at the moment is it, it's just guaranteed to pile on the pressure on social media. But you know, we can't can't get away from the fact that we didn't record a shot on target in either of the past two games, and we just absolutely lost whatever groove we were in a, a few years ago, a few, a few years ago, a few games ago, for God's sake. Um, and and that you know it, it brought to mind that, that this pronounced change in in how we are. Uh, it brought to mind a time before your time, Kevin. We were I was at a game at the lane, and we were beating Bolton two to nil. And it was a Boxing Day game, and the big screen flashed up a picture of Naeem, who was in the crowd, and and the the team's concentration was completely broken. And the next thing you know, we draw two two. And it was a, a a hugely Spursy, a legendary Spursy moment. And this season has been one of those highs and lows kind of you know legendary Spursy season. And you can't you can't address this without talking about Harry. And you know clearly he's the talisman, and uh, obviously a lot depends on his mindset off the pitch as well as his dip on it. I mean, you know, did did flying out to the Masters Golf affect his training rhythm? Yes, probably, but it should be out of his system by now, you'd think. And and frankly, all the other players who didn't go on holiday that weekend have also come up short in the last couple of games. You know, given the, the contrast between the you know the Nothing less than sublime the way we were playing against Newcastle and the Brighton game, you know, just shows how lacking we are when three players all have an off day at the same time. Um, and, and certainly I think the importance of this is Kane is as central as Conte, I think, to what happens with the team and, and maybe even more broadly with the club and its ownership you know, for next season and beyond. So that's that. That's actually why it's slightly more worrying than just the outcome of, of individual games. Um, I mean, some some people think we, we expect too much of him. Uh, and there, there was a Barney Roney piece in The Guardian uh, yesterday, I think, or the other day that I kind of alluded to about uh, Kane's role playing as, as both a striker and an attacking midfielder at the same time. And that's you know, obviously something we've known about for a while, but it goes back to the fact that we haven't really replaced Christian Eriksen and and then, you know, Deli Ali's form dropping off a cliff as well. But but you, you have to look, I think, at the depth in the squad and we just don't have enough players, I think, that can that can come on and change a game if it's not going right. <clears throat> I mean, look at the Chelsea this morning, for example. In this morning's game, uh, Tuchel was able to make a triple substitution in the 75th minute and bring on Lukaku, Pulisic, and Ziyech. And you know, Ziyech is, you know, for me, one of their one of their best players. I'm shocked that he uh, spends as much time as he does on the bench. And at that stage of a game, if if we need to shake something up, if it's not clearly not working, our bench is pretty much Mora and Bergwijn and hope for the best. You know, so I, I think that it, it's illustrative of the fact that we're putting too much on too few players' shoulders. Mm. And again, just going back to uh, the issue we had with the service from the wingbacks, 
maybe it might just be time to, to you know, start more on Bergwijn as wingbacks and just see what happens. Uh, it certainly can't, it can't be any worse. Um, but, you know, the, the good news this week, I think, obviously, was, was signing Skip to an extended contract. And I think we're, we're pretty strong in the middle of the park with Bentancur and, and, uh, and uh, Hoiberg and, and Skip as well. But, you know, there are, there are certain aspects of our play that if one, player, if one player is having an off day, usually that can be covered for. If three players are having an off day at the same time, um, then that's, that's not, we're not going to be able to redress that. And especially if that happens against teams who have a very um, determined game plan, who know how we're going to set out, who know how we're going to play. And, and uh, you know, both Brentford and, uh, and Brighton played a, a very solid game plan against us. Credit to both the teams for frustrating us all day. And, um, you know, it, it, it's, it's worrying. The inconsistency, I think, is more worrying than, um, than the fact that uh, we're, we're losing random games because it's, uh, it's not for a want of trying. It's not like you can point to the players and say they're not trying. Uh, it's definitely not that. I think it's just literally we're not we're not able to maintain that that confidence that comes from from knowing that you're you're playing with the sort of uh, freedom that we had in the Newcastle game. Not to you know use that as an example, but that's uh, you know that that that's pretty much where where we want to be every game. Yeah, I think you make a lot of good points there. On your substitution point, the for people that aren't aware of this, the first sub. This weekend for Tottenham Hotspur was Davinson Sanchez because Antonio Conte was so worried about how many set pieces we were conceding and not defending well, just giving Tony three free shots at goal, which fortunately he missed all of to, to help us get the one point. But yeah, very, very much illustrates your point. And it seems Conte isn't super pleased with Bergwijn behind the scenes because you'd think he'd be the one you'd first turn to. Um, but he, he did that. Uh, I deserve to play more thing where then they were like, prove it and then you didn't yeah. and so no um and then lucas always you know works as hard as he can but he has no end output and then you right. mentioned the the wingback situation because i think from the second doherty went down mm-hmm. tottenham have not been the better side in a match including the villa mm-hmm. match which the scoreline did not reflect how that match went mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um so i i think you're totally right i think doherty himself provided output he helped Kulisevsky exactly like you were saying earlier helps with the crossing for our previous conversation uh it means that the person on the left doesn't need to do as much which Regulon and Sessignon are both disappointed in doing and I think you know not that all of a sudden people realize that Kane's good but Villa basically shaded Kane's right foot the whole match to make sure he couldn't play early balls Brighton never let Kane get the ball period and then this last match I actually thought was his best of the three in, mm-hmm. in terms of getting the ball, but then he wasn't doing well with it. He was having loose touches, misplacing passes. He just wasn't yeah. air quotes on. Um, so yeah, there's 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 a lot going on, and none of it is very encouraging in the race for fourth. But <laughs> we've seen crazier things. And technically, if Tottenham won out, they'd make it in because they're two points off Arsenal, and a win yeah. against Arsenal is worth yeah. uh, three. I'm looking at the yep scoreboard. Yeah, yeah, that 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 math checks out. Um, but anyway, we'll move from there into player watch, where the the bottom of the table is starting to to make a little bit more sense. Although I, I think it was Steve you mentioned earlier that maybe leads are are getting kind of pulled back into it, which is probably fair. Um, but mostly it's four clubs, right? It's Norwich and Watford who are seemingly down. 
Burnley and Everton fighting for that last relegation spot and maybe potentially Leeds if they get dragged into it. And I was just curious if there are any players from those clubs that you're kind of eyeing as potential incomings if they were to go down. Yeah, I had to think hard about this because I kind of I restricted myself to the teams that I think definitely are down already. So I sort of thought in terms of Watford and Norwich to start with, both of whom have been really disappointing this season. So it was actually really hard to pick a player that I'd quite like to sign from those two. Um, obviously, Dennis has Dennis has probably been at Watford has probably been the standout from an attacking perspective. Um, even if he had kind of gone off the boil a bit in the second half of the season, maybe hasn't maintained that early season form that that he did have um but but Palace are kind of fairly well stocked in that area already so I think if I'm thinking in terms of players that would fit an actual need for Palace then I'd probably say Max Ahrens um the Norwich right back Mm. who has always impressed me whenever I've watched him um even if he did give away a penalty against Palace this season um but we're at a bit of a weird place in that position um Joel Ward is kind of past the peak of his powers. Nathaniel Klein has been good this year, but you know, similarly is at, at the wrong end of his career. And then you have Nathan Ferguson, who um who we signed to fill that void at right back ahead of the I think it was the 2021 season. Um, but he just seems to have the worst luck with injury. I think he's done his cruciate, he's done his I think he's done his Achilles and every time he's kind of on the cusp of a return, he seems to tweak a hamstring or do a groin or something like that. And it just kind of feels like he's one of those players who's just destined to never play a game for us, unfortunately. So I think if I had to choose, I would I would probably say Aaron's at Norwich. Um, but then if you were to get into you know, some of those other teams down there, like Everton, for example, there's probably quite a few players in, yeah. in that squad that I'm sure a lot of teams... Um, not only Palace would kind of be looking at and would be interested in signing Um, because when you you go through that Everton squad it really is quite remarkable that they are Mm. they do find themselves in the position that they're in yeah no I I think that's absolutely right and I was going to mention Aaron's as well because uh, yeah I mean not not really because we have a fullback uh, wingback situation uh, to deal with but uh, also because I I think he has always been a a good solid player and I I think apart from uh, Saar, perhaps, and Dennis, as you mentioned. Uh, I'm not sure any of the, the Watford or, or the other Norwich players would be, would be really anything more than squad additions for us. Not that we you know, don't need more depth, but we need a, a greater range of quality. And uh, obviously, you know, a lot's going to depend on who our manager is next season and what they, what they think they might need. So a good point you made actually about Everton, and I was thinking you know, if Everton did, did eventually get Go down. I think Richarlison could do a good job for us. Um, he has a very sort of Chris Armstrong vibe about how he uh, he runs off the ball and he gets into you know good attacking positions if if he can get good service. And obviously, as you say, Sam, you know it'd be interesting to see where where players like Pickford or uh, Dakuri or Alan might go. Um, still very outside possibility. I think that Leeds, if Leeds went down. Rafinha would be in demand, and Calvin Phillips, I think, has been obviously loosely linked with us in the past. But uh, I, I, I suspect in that situation, bigger bigger clubs than us would would probably outbid us for him. Uh, I obviously have a soft spot for Stuart Dallas uh, and his positional flexibility, but you know, not recommending that we sign him. He would have been a, a great squad signing, I think, three or four years ago, and uh, he's just a terrific player for Northern Ireland as well. Um, if, if Burnley if Burnley go down, I think Maxwell Cornet uh, will be a, a, in big demand. And I also thought Weghorst was a really good 
a really good pickup for them. But I haven't seen enough of Weghorst really to know if he's the sort of player that would that would fit in at Spurs. But uh, yeah, it's it's always a challenge, isn't it? Sort of thinking if if a if a player comes from a team that's been relegated, they obviously have something to prove. But they're also there's a reason they were relegated, you know. <laughs> So um, yeah, no, it's it's uh, it's going to be an interesting an interesting way to see how that shakes out. Yeah, I, I, basically any striker to to back up Kane, <laughs> which Arlison could do it obviously wide and and also play through the middle. So kind of kind of in a sun way, um, not comparing the two as players too much, but just the fact that he could deputize both positions, so you aren't bloating the squad trying to. To find separate players to fix, fix those solutions, but yeah, like give me Emmanuel Dennis, it would be something different than Kane. Uh, so, yeah, absolutely fine with that. But I do think if you're limiting yourself to those two, I think you're both probably right for picking Max Aaron's, who hasn't really lived up to his prospect status mm. as much as I think people would have hoped. But that still makes him probably the best of those clubs, uh, which maybe says a lot. I do really like Sar, uh, but again, had a kind of a weird year this year, so. Not really mm-hmm. sure if that's someone you want to hang your hat on. Uh, right. All right, Sam, next up for you is the lead side that we keep mentioning based on the fact that everybody seems a little iffy on their Premier League status. Are, are you confident heading into that one? Uh, if you'd asked me this two weeks ago, then I definitely would have been. Um, but as you guys have sort of been saying, it feels like tomorrow is taken on what what sort of initially felt like would have been sort of a bit of a dead rubber. It feels like it's taken on great significance Especially for Leeds, I suppose, um, you know, he almost looked safe a few weeks ago after those wins against, who obviously beat Wolves that really weird 3-2. Um, I think there was one game before that where they sort of nicked it in the last minute. Norwich, that was it. They won that one in the last minute as well. Um, but because of Burnley's form, well, Burnley's form especially, as you say, that kind of there is kind of a slight risk of them getting sucked in again. Um, and, you know, everyone talks about the difficulty of Everton's running, but... Leeds also still have City, Arsenal and Chelsea to play in theirs. So I imagine that they'll probably be looking at Monday night's game as one where they really need to pick up a point or three just to kind of make sure of their their Premier League status. But, you know, similarly for us, it's it feels, I wouldn't say it's a it's a huge game, but it's an, it's an important game just to kind of prove that, you know, what we've done this season... Um, just to kind of yeah carry on the progress that we've been making this season, to be honest, because there is a danger of, of it petering out um, after the semi-final, the game against Newcastle on the, the Wednesday after. Um, I didn't manage to watch it, but from what I heard, it was you know pretty ordinary from our perspective, which you can kind of accept uh, a few days after such a big game. I imagine the, the occasion at Wembley probably took a lot out of the players, but I think hopefully tomorrow... Uh, we can we can expect a little bit of that hunger to be back, and you know just to prove if anything that there's always that saying is that there are, there are certain teams that at this stage of the season kind of down tools a little bit because because it's job done, and I've seen Palace do that on far too many occasions, and it it really makes the last few weeks of the season not very enjoyable at all. So I'm hoping that under Vieira things will be a little bit different, and and we do turn up tomorrow and we sort of get a three points that takes us to that magic forty point mark. Gotcha. Well, certainly good luck. And then Steve, next up for us is Leicester, which a lot of people probably think is going to be, you know, a close affair. But in recent years, Tottenham versus Leicester has been a lot of goals and typically for Harry Kane. 
Yeah, exactly. Or, or indeed for, for Steven Bergwijn based on the, uh, <laughs> well, yes. the, the previous uh, fixture. But I, I don't think we can expect that sort of drama again this time, although I'd love to be proved wrong if, if it turns out the right way. I mean, it, it's very typical, isn't it, of you know Spurs and Leicester, both teams that have had Champions League heroics in, in recent years. And, uh, and Leicester, you know, still with, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, association with European football and still sort of dabbing at, at the edges there, but they're, you know, what are they? They're in 11th, 10th, something like that. And, uh, you know, the, it, it, I can I honestly see, I can see this finishing nil-nil based on the way in which we're playing at the moment and the fact that Leicester aren't really um, uh, particularly decisive or incisive when it comes to, to scoring goals at the moment. But, uh, uh, who knows? I mean, it's uh, it's a tough one. I, I'm glad it's at home. Let's put it that way. I'm glad we actually get back to uh, to to playing at home and uh, and actually try and um, try and pick up some points when we need them. But you know, it, again, it could be one of those games that just turns out to be desperately frustrating. Certainly hope not, but yeah, that's possible. In <laughs> theory, it should be a good match to get off of this no shots on target thing. But uh, yeah. you know knocking on all sorts of materials, including wood. Uh, we'll leave the show there for today. This, if you'd like to tell folks where they could find you or anything you're working on, now would be a good time. Yeah, cheers, Kev. Cheers, Steve. Um, always enjoy coming on and all the best to Spurs in their pursuits of the top four. Um, I'm Sam Carp. You can find me at Sam double underscore Carp on Twitter. And you can also find some of my articles on the Eagles Beak fan site. Thank you, Kevin. It was another fun conversation. Thank you, Sam. And um, uh, best wishes to everybody, Jake, and everybody at the Eagles Beak, which is a, a really good fanzine. Um, uh, my name's Steve McGookin, and you can get me on Twitter at Steve McGookin. And uh, I, next time I come on, Kev, I'm going to tell you all about this new writing project that I've got going on. Ooh, exciting. Yeah, I've, I've actually gotten a sneak peek, and people will probably be excited to see what that is when it comes out. And also, Sam, thank you for your kind words about the top four. I wish you a merry finish above Brighton um, for the show. You can find us at EPL Roundtable. You can also email us at EPLRoundtable at gmail.com with any questions. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Kev Roth. Uh, but thanks to these two massively for coming on today. Had a great time. And folks at home, we hope you keep listening. Mm-hmm.